from Paul's letter to his son Timothy. Chapter 4, starting in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I'm super delighted uh, to be with you today. Um, I... uh, have loved Greg and Catherine and their family for many years uh, uh, and uh, just delight to see what uh, the work that is happening, the work that you all are doing here in this community. Uh, It's been eight years since I've been uh, here and you have this new facility, many more people. I'm just so delighted to see what the Lord is doing with you all. Um, I mentioned at the Oh, did you want me to? You want me to say something about the the the, the brothers? Uh, okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, I, I first come to to the Lord, and I was still in kind of that that like kind of cynical thing. Like, is this for real? You know, are these people for real? And um, the this group of guys invited me to go to breakfast breakfast with them after church which I thought would, would be okay. And I thought maybe these guys are going to be weird. And I, I just didn't know, you know, I didn't know what, what it was going to be like. Uh, they took me out to the clock restaurant. That's where it was in Bowling Green, Ohio. And what was going on was um, they were, there was a conflict in the house. Now I lived with two guys that were in a fraternity and, uh, and our routine, the routine amongst my house, the house that I lived in with these unbelieving characters was a lot of put-downs, a lot of just meanness, a lot of uh, just ugly behavior, you know, just kind of secular, ugly behavior between guys. We just, we'd cuss at each other, we'd throw things at each other. Uh, They routinely brought over their entire uh, fraternity during the day to smoke pot and watch uh, a, one of those daytime television shows like Days of Our Lives or something like that. That was like a thing back then. Weird, like, it was just so weird. So anyway, I go out to breakfast with these guys and they're having a conflict. And I had, ne- like when, when we had conflict amongst the house that I lived in with, this is not, I, I, I was, coming out of this not Christian household. So in that household, it was just every man for himself. It was mean. It was heartless. It was cruel. I watched these guys as they worked through this this real conflict amongst themselves. And they did so by listening to each other. They were gentle. They were thoughtful. They they, They worked through this whole disagreement. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. 
And it was something about the interplay between these brothers in conflict and how they worked through it in Christ that made me say, oh, this is the real thing. This is really, uh, like, this this is something that I want to be a part of. So that's what the story that Greg was alluding to. Okay. I mentioned in the earlier service uh, that one of my (coughs) earliest examples of a gifted evangelist was uh, a crazy guy named Greg Weiss. Um, But if there was a golden year for young gifted evangelists, it wasn't 1981, Greg, sorry about that. It was the year 1945. Three men that year, all of them young men, all of, all of them in their 20s, burst onto the evangelistic scene like fireworks. Let me tell you about these guys. The first young man was a guy named Chuck Templeton. He was ministering for uh, Youth for Christ, and he was packing auditoriums. One seminary professor, after hearing Templeton preach, called him the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. In 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on the man who had been best used by God for the previous five years, and guess who it was? It was our guy, Chuck Templeton. Many uh, were certain that Templeton was the up-and-coming Babe Ruth of evangelism. He was going to be the man. The second shooting star was a guy named Bron Clifford, a 25-year-old fireball preacher. And many considered him to be the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. One article said this about him. Young Clifford touched more lives influenced more leaders and set more attendance records than any other clergyman his age in American history. National leaders vied for his attention. He was tall, handsome, intelligent, and eloquent. He was so popular that uh, he was invited to audition for movies in Hollywood. The third guy was a simple country boy named Billy Graham. Let me ask you this. How come you've heard of Billy Graham, but not Templeton or Clifford? I'll tell you why. In 1950, Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career as a radio and television commentator and a newspaper columnist. And he had decided that he no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. The future Babe Ruth was no longer in the game. By 1954, Clifford had lost everything he once had. Uh, Alcohol and financial irresponsibility undermined his life. He left behind a wife and two Down's syndrome children. At only 35 years old, this once great preacher died penniless, in Amarillo, Texas. One writer said that his death was unwept, unhonored, and unsung. It took a group of local churches in Amarillo to take up a collection so that they could purchase a casket and send his body to be shipped back east for a decent burial in a cemetery for the poor. Billy Graham, a 60-year 
fruitful ministry, no scandal, beloved, mourned by thousands upon thousands at his death, a humble, faithful, loyal servant of God for his entire life. In 1945, three men with extraordinary gifts were preaching the gospel to multiple thousands across the nation, but within 10 years, only one was still on track for Christ. In the Christian life, it is not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. Let me pray, and then we're going to get after 2 Timothy 4. Jesus, we are here for a reason. Of course, one of those reasons is to simply give you your due and worship. And I hope that you've been pleased. I think you've been pleased by that which we've offered to you this day. Thank you for the gifts of of the worship team and how they've led us so well uh, into your presence. But also, Lord, we have not just come to give unto you, but to receive from you. And so we ask that you'd open our hearts and minds by your spirit that we could soak in and take in all that you want to teach us today. Lord, we open ourselves purposely now and we say, please, Lord, come, teach, correct, uh, encourage, give us what we need as we move forward in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the Christian life isn't a stroll in the park, and neither is it a hundred-yard dash. It is much more like a marathon. Life like a marathon is tough to finish at all, but it's tougher to finish well. And when you see a man or woman who finishes well, it is always worth it to try to find out how they did that. The Apostle Paul was a man who finished well. It seems that after all he's been through, he crosses the finish line with energy to spare. And then he jogs back to where Timothy is faltering and he exhorts him to keep running well. Now, Paul wrote these verses, if if you're familiar at all uh, with the history of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing these verses from a dark, dank prison. And he's endured all manner of difficulty in opposition as he has ministered uh, over the last 30 years. And even though many at this point in his life seem to be turning away from him and turning away from the gospel and looking to false teachers, and even though he is facing imminent death, his words are not the words of a discouraged man. He's not broken. He's not despairing. He is not uh, defeated or cynical. Instead, what we hear is calm assurance, a man at rest, confident in the way he has spent his life. So what can Paul teach us about finishing well? In our verses, Paul suggests that finishing well has something to do with the present, something to do with the past, and something to do with the future. What was it about Paul's present that helped him to finish well? 
Well, first, Paul's confidence seems to flow from the fact that he had made disciples who would carry on after he was gone. Verse 6 begins with the connective word for, and it refers back to the previous verses about speaking to others about Christ that we talked about at the first service. The flow of the thought is something like this, if you'll allow me to paraphrase. Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm about to die, but my joy and confidence is in you. Here's the baton, take it and run for Christ. Kind of like a businessman who is uh, entering retirement, but he's confident that his enterprise will thrive in the hands of his successor, or maybe a parent who's, who gladly gives an inheritance to his children. Moving on is so much easier if there are those who you have influenced, trained, and built up to carry on your work after you're gone. So can I ask you, are you working on this task? Are you obeying Jesus's great commission to make disciples? We've all been given pulpits. It's probably at home. Uh, it's probably at work. It's probably at school and a handful of other places that you frequent and are known. When you are gone, there should be others who will carry on for Christ because of your influence. Are there? Are you giving time and attention and prayer to seek and influence those who need Jesus? Is the gospel something that you are glad to have for yourself? Or does it burn within you to tell others of its glorious truths? Paul could also finish well in the present because he viewed his life as a sacrifice, an offering to God. He knows full well that he's about to be put to death, but Paul doesn't see this as God treating him cruelly or unfairly. Paul completely understands that his life is not his own, and he gladly, worshipfully sees his life as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Now, I I'm not going to presume to know you well enough to say this about you. I'll just speak for myself. That oftentimes I tend to love and pamper and guard my life. Uh, try to make sure that I'm never inconvenienced or placed in harm's way, even for the Lord. But Paul would tell the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, but I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His life was a sacrifice, and he didn't shrink back from calling the church to see itself the same way. In Romans 12, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The worship isn't just what we do on Sunday mornings. It is each of us giving God all of us all the time to use in whatever way he desires. Let me put it another way. Each of us are expendable. Here's the great apostle to the Gentiles. 
the man who did more to spread the gospel than any other man in church history. His influence is incalculable. And yet he saw himself as expendable. A drink offering poured out to please God. In, in, the, in the prescribed Old Testament sacrifices, after the sacrificial lamb had been placed on the altar and just before it was going to be burned, the priest would pour out a drink offering over it of about a quart of wine. You can read this in Numbers 28 if you want to. It was the final act of worship. Uh, in the Bible, wine is a, a symbol of joy. And so that the drink offering was kind of a way of saying, with joy and gladness, I give all that I am and all that I have to you, Lord. I pour myself out to you, O Lord. And that was how Paul viewed his own impending death as a final offering of worship to God on top of an entire life of sacrifice. In Philippians 2, Paul says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, what he's talking about is his death. How can he think, how can, how can you think about your own death in such a positive way? Well, we get a hint from Paul who uses a, a very vivid Greek word that gives us some great imagery that can help us rethink what death really is for the Christian. Paul uses this term departure. And in the Greek, it, it, it meant to be released, unloosed, unshackled. It was, the, it was the word that was used to uh, describe the unyoking of an animal from a plow or a cart or a burden. And in this sense, death means the end of the hard labors and toils and burdensome yokes of this life. It was also the word that was used to um, take off the bonds of a prisoner. So death is the release of the chains that are these weak and sin-prone bodies. The term was used in the military for loosening the ropes of a soldier's field tent when he was about to head home. The idea is that death, at death, our, the battle is over. Victory is won and we get to go home. The word was also loosed for, used for the loosening of a, of a ship's mooring ropes. When we die, our, our earthly ship leaves this harsh, stormy waters of, of this life and, and it puts in at the safe and calm port of heaven. So viewing death this way, we can finish our time here with joy and anticipation, not with fear or dread, knowing that to be with Christ is far better so that we can say with confidence, as if you were here at the earlier service, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. So to finish well, keep in mind Paul's view of the present. Make disciples who will carry on after you're gone and give God all of your life in joyful service and see your end as instead an amazing beginning. But Paul goes on in verse 7 to see his past giving him confidence as he approaches his life's end as well. 
Now, if we weren't aware of Paul's other writings, he might come across here as super cocky. Um, But even earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul spoke of being able to suffer for the gospel by the power of God. And he could live for God because of God's purpose and grace. He calls Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul knows where any of his successes have come from. But also, we don't want to discount Paul's commitment, his courage, and his effort. So let's look at the three phrases that he uses to describe his life in the past as he lived it for Christ. And here he turns to athletic metaphors. And he says, first, I've fought the good fight. The word fight here is the word agon. That's where we get our English word agony. Uh, And pictured here is the athlete who leaves it all on the field, who exhausts himself fighting for victory. I don't know where I came across this picture of these fighters, but I, I just loved it when I saw it. Here, these guys have fought their fight and they are both so exhausted that the referee has to hold them up until their, their handlers can come and take them. They are just spent. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul's statement is more succinct, but I've always loved Teddy Roosevelt's quote. Now, if you ever come and visit me in Tampa and you uh, get to stay with me at my house and you use our guest bathroom, you'll uh, see this quote uh, etched on the wall, among others. We all got to choose our favorite quotes and we wrote them all over our bathroom walls and it entertains people as they're using our bathroom. (laughs) I don't know. But I've always loved this Teddy Roosevelt quote. And so this is right there. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of good deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that in his place, Shall never, that, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Here's the deal. The church doesn't need any more critics or nitpicky busybodies. Yes, we should always be in dialogue about how we can work for Christ together better. But that's a lot different than the couch potato critic, the armchair quarterback, who isn't involved in the solution, but relishes every opportunity to point out how everybody else is doing it wrong. The church needs those who are actually in the arena. And I'd like to call you to that today, to get in the arena, to fight the good fight yourself. Those who are agonizing for Jesus have little time to be a bad-mouthing bully. If, if, if they get the chance, they wipe off the dust and sweat and blood, they take a breather for a minute, and then they get back into the fray. Let me ask you this. 
Why is it that false religions are so steeply on the rise in America? Why has worldliness stained the fabric of the church? In part, it's because the critics are many and the fighters are few. If Christianity is easy and convenient for us, then we're doing it wrong. Listen to Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter, it by it, uh, enter, who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Paul gave his all for Christ. He walked the hard road. He also says, I have finished the race. I've finished the race. Having given his best, Paul now sees himself as having crossed the finish line. Now, any of you, are any of you runners? Any of you uh, run a 5K or a 10K or half, any half marathoners? Any marathoners? Okay, half marathon? Okay, so if you don't believe me, uh, you can ask these people. It's easy to sign up for a race. It's easy to start a race, but it's hard to finish a long race and it's harder still to finish strong. Paul uses the word dromon for race here. And that word had a notable place in the uh, ancient Greco-Roman world. In 490 BC, a Greek dromo, a runner messenger by the name of Pheidippides was dispatched by the, the Greek general to inform the citizens of Athens that the Persians had been defeated at the Battle of Marathon. According to legend, Pheidippides ran 26 miles from the plains of Marathon to Athens. He yells, rejoice, we conquer, and then he falls down dead. In 1896, when the modern uh, Olympic Games resumed in Greece, the modern marathon of 26.2 miles was initiated in honor of old Pheidippides. There's a great story that every long distance runner will appreciate and relate to. Uh, in the 1971 Pan American Games, uh, in the marathon trials, there was a guy named Frank Shorter. And uh, Frank Shorter was an amazing runner, but in this particular race, he hit the wall at mile marker 21. And as he was being passed, just before he dropped out of the race, Shorter breathlessly grumbled, why couldn't Pheidippides have died here? <laughs> There's no such thing as an easy marathon. I, uh, I've run a half marathon. And, uh, and my first thought at the end of my half marathon was not, yay, I finished. It was, you mean people do this like a whole nother one on top of that? Like people run actually, why would they do that? I never did it. Um, Frank Shorter and many, many other runners have had to drop out of a particular race. No shame in that. But in the race to serve Jesus with his whole life, the apostle Paul never dropped out. 
He stayed the course. It was a hard course. It was hard physically. It was hard emotionally and spiritually and relationally. But Paul was a dromo. He was a long distance runner messenger whose message was similar to that of Pheidippides. Rejoice in Christ we conquer. Paul concludes his look back by saying, I've kept the faith. Now, if Paul is still thinking in the context of his athletic metaphors, he's likely thinking of the Olympic Games where the athletes took a solemn oath before the Games that they would compete honestly and honorably. Here is Paul at the end of his race, affirming that the Lord has carried him through thick and thin and enabled him with occasional stumbles and halts and setbacks to run to the end. More specifically, several times in these letters to Timothy, Paul has talked about the deposit that Timothy is to guard. He was referring to the truth of the gospel, the core doctrines of our faith. When Paul says that he has kept the faith, he means that he has carefully guarded the truth about sinful people and a loving, redeeming God. Paul hadn't bought into any of the errors about Christ that were circulating in his day. He believed and lived on the solid ground of sound doctrine. You cannot keep a faith that you aren't clear about. So it is worth it to study, to ask questions, to wrestle with the hard stuff that you might know what you believe and avoid being tossed around by the strong winds of false doctrine, of societal pressures, the twists and turns of your own broken nature, and the deceptive whispers of your scheming enemy. So Paul could finish well as he looked to his present and to his past But he could also, and maybe most importantly, finish well because he had a rich vision for his future beyond the grave. Now, most people hate to think about death. But Paul is actually excited about what John called earlier that day. What could be so appealing? Well, two things, it seems. First of all, he gets to stand before the righteous judge. Now, I don't know what what that feels like to you, to stand before God at the last day. For some people, it sounds dreadful instead of being a time of joyful, worshipful hope. If it sounds dreadful to you, then you need to get your understanding of the gospel squared away. If you are a Christian, if you have truly repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus' death on the cross as having paid the penalty for all your sin and given you the greatest of all gifts, his righteousness credited to you, then you should love the idea of standing before God because there's, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You get to stand freely before him. Jesus said that those who believe in him will not be condemned because he has crossed over from death to life. Real followers of Christ will not stand before the righteous judge and boast about all of their amazing qualities and the acts of kindness that they did and and how they they took care of puppies and, and their religious activity. 
No, real Christians are excited to stand before the Lord because on that day, it will be the first time that you get to stand face to face before the Lord and say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being just and the one who justifies. Thank you for being uncompromisingly holy and uncompromisingly loving in granting holiness to an undeserving but completely grateful believer. We get to say thank you to Jesus on that day. Paul also is excited because of the stunning prospect of receiving a crown of righteousness. Again, it wouldn't surprise me if Paul is thinking here of those ancient Olympic games where the winning athlete was, would receive that laurel wreath uh, or a garland of oak leaves on their heads. To wear such a crown was the greatest honor that could come to an athlete. But it's interesting that back in that day, in a few short days, that laurel wreath would wither up and all the leaves would fall to the ground. But Paul knows that for him and for all who have longed for his appearing, there is a crown that will never fade or tarnish or diminish. It is the crown of the righteousness of Christ, an eternal reminder of the love of God that was expressed to you in the blood of his son, Jesus. It's a token of his grace, an outward sign of an inward and everlasting treasure. You know, it wouldn't surprise me when we get to heaven, <clears throat> if when we greet each other, it won't be with a handshake or a high five. I wonder if we won't lean forward and touch our crowns together, not as an act of boasting in ourselves, because, that's, because they're not our crowns. It's, they're not crowns of our righteousness. It's the crown of the righteousness of Christ. It would be for us a way to say, all, all for Jesus, only because there was one who loved me when I could not be lovable. All because someone was willing to sacrifice their life for someone who deserved nothing. We could touch our crowns and say, it's because of Jesus. Paul would remind each of us of the ways that we can finish well. In our present day, with his help, we can give our absolute all for the Lord and make disciples that will continue the Lord's work when we're gone from this place. And we can look back and see, yes, a lot of imperfection. We're, none of us are perfect. And yet here we are still fighting, still running, still keeping the faith. And each one of us can retool our thinking and see the day before us, the day of the Lord as a day of tears of joy, falling from our face in worship and a long warm embrace with Jesus where we can whisper, thank you for saving a wretch like me. Where are you at in your race? I think some of you have 
just begun. Good for you. Maybe some of you are at the midpoint. Maybe some of you, like me and the other gray hairs in the room, who are getting near the finish line. I bet some of you feel like you're hitting the wall and you'd like to jump out of the race. Please listen to the apostle as he calls out from his dungeon to you today and says, don't quit. Keep going. With the Lord, you can finish well. I'm sure most of you have heard of Eric Liddell. He was the 1924 Olympic 400-meter gold medalist. He was also the subject of the 1981 Academy Award-winning film, Chariots of Fire. Liddell was the son of Scottish missionaries to China. And he went on to become a missionary serving China himself. Like the Apostle Paul, Liddell was imprisoned and died for his witness for Christ. I think Eric Liddell maybe had the apostle words here in 2 Timothy in mind when he said this, run for God and let the whole world stand in wonder. Run for God, church. Let the whole world look as you as it will. Maybe they won't stand in wonder. Maybe they'll stand in derision. Run for God anyway. Finish strong. Finish well. I remember vividly, like it was yesterday, really, when the Holy Spirit pierced the dark, dark heart of a deeply sinful young man and enabled him to see the majestic truth of the gospel. And that young man was gloriously saved. I remember it well because that sinful kid was me. And it really and truly seems to me like it was just a couple of years ago when in reality, it's been 38 years. And now I'm not 23 years old, but I'm a 60-year-old old man. And I can see the finish line. Oh, sweet friends, our time is short. Entrust yourself to him. Run well, finish strong. Amen. Let's, let me pray for us all. Lord, we ask your help this morning that you, by your rich and powerful grace, would help us to finish well. Help us to pour out our lives as an offering to you, making disciples and and being confident in our soon coming departure. We want to fight your good fight. We want to run your race and keep your faith. And hear us as we say that we cannot wait to stand before you clothed in your righteousness with nothing and no one condemning us, wearing a crown that was won for us and gifted to us by the true victor so that we can love you, sing praise to you, and honor you. Until then, hear us now as we say, thank you, 
Jesus. Amen.